Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I have a very exciting show today because I have with me two of our amazing OB fellows here at Johns Hopkins, Dave Berman and... On Nguyen. They are the two ACGME OB fellows here. They're really fantastic, and they have decided to collaborate and put together a really great podcast for us today where we're going to talk about neuraxial medications uh, that are used on OB. They're going to split this up a little bit, and Dave is going to talk about the uh, adjuvants like local anesthetics and um, opioids, and then on is going to take us through all the other things that we can put in epidurals. This is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to learning a lot. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good morning or good afternoon or whatever it is. Uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about local anesthetics, opiates, and adjuvants. Um, we don't want to bore you with too much basic science, so we'll try to make this as lighthearted and fun as possible without blocking too many of your sodium channels. I'll start out talking about some choices of local anesthetics and opiates, and then on we'll talk about some adjuvants. If you want to get in touch with us or to talk more about these techniques, you can feel free to email us. My email is dberma20 at jhmi.edu, and on is tnguy193 at jhmi.edu. So let's go to get into the nitty-gritty of the basic science. Great. Yeah, Dave, that would be so. Uh, thank you guys for putting your email addresses out there. That's really great. And people should certainly feel free um, to get in touch that way. We'll also put those up on the show notes so that you can access them on the website at acrac.com. Um, all right. So, yeah, let's launch in. Dave, tell me about uh, what, what, what do you think people should know about the kind of basic science behind local anesthetics uh, when used for neuraxial blockade? So, obviously, I, I'm going to try not to bore you too much, but this stuff is clinically relevant and is also tested on board, so it's kind of important to know. Uh, so we have two basic structures for local anesthetics. There are amides, which are liver metabolized and are the backbone ha, of our practice. <laughs> there are also esters, which are metabolized by plasma and tissue esterases, including pseudocolonesterase, and are not so commonly used in OB. So let's just remember how we can separate amides and esters for a second. All local anesthetics all have an amido group in addition to their amide or ester side chain. So if they are amido-amides, amido-amide has two eyes, whereas amido-esters only have one eye. So that's how you can remember that all local anesthetics with two eyes, such as lidocaine, bupivacaine, and mepivacaine are amides, whereas local anesthetics with just one eye, such as procaine, tetracaine, cocaine, and chlorprocaine, are esters. Most of our local anesthetics used in obstetrics are amides. If you guys have trouble spelling, you may not think this is helpful. <laughs> Remember that local anesthetics are all weak bases with a pKa greater than 7. Um, if we remember our Henderson-Hasselbalch equation, when the pH is equal to the pKa, the number of ionized and unionized molecules are the same. If your tissue is more acidic than the pKa of your solution, remember our pH in human tissue is approximately 7.4, more of your molecules will be ionized. On we'll talk about what that means for us in a few minutes in terms of adjuvants, but just remember that concept. 
Remember that local anesthetics bind by diffusion across the lipid bilayer. Lipid bilayers don't like to let charged things through in order to maintain the charged gradient that nerve cells uh, require to function. So we want our local anesthetics PKA to be as close to tissue pH as possible. So this is why, for instance, uh, a peripheral nerve block with mepivacaine, which has a PKA of 7.6, has a faster onset of action than bupivacaine, whose PKA is 8.1. Just remember that there are some exceptions to this rule. Uh, chloroprocaine's PKA is 8.7, but it's the fastest onset of all of our local anesthetics. This is probably due to the fact that we give 3% and not half percent or one percent or quarter percent, something like that. Um, so you're just giving more molecules. Um, but in general, pKa is correlated with the speed of onset, with lower pKa being faster. And Dave, I'll just say uh, that point you made about chlorprocaine, uh, even with the high pKa still having a fast onset, is a commonly tested topic. So that's something you may see come up and is a really nice uh, little board uh, key point to know. Um, so in terms of uh, lipid solubility, typically uh, locals that are highly lipid soluble tend to be more potent, which means that you need less of them in order to achieve the same clinical effect. Um, so that's why, for instance, bupivacaine, uh, we typically give in concentrations of 0.125 to 0.75% uh, as opposed to lidocaine, which will give in half to really 2% concentrations to get good effect. Um, However, lipid solubility is associated with slower onset of action. Um, like most drugs in anesthesia, our termination is not by metabolism, but really is by redistribution. Um, so if you have a drug that's highly protein-bound, protein binding is going to stop it from being redistributed and absorbed into surrounding blood vasculature. So higher protein binding is associated with a longer duration of action. And just to talk about metabolism for a hot second, amides are liver metabolized and esters are generally uh, esterase metabolized, in including pseudocolonesterase. So amides metabolism is impaired in the setting of severe liver disease, and esters metabolism is impaired in pseudocolonesterase deficiency. One important exception is cocaine, which is an ester, but does have significant hepatic metabolism. Hopefully, we don't use this too much on the labor floor, even though our patients sometimes do. Um, but it does have some local anesthetic effects uh, and vasoconstrictive effects in head and neck and ophthalmologic surgery. Um, also remember that depending on nerve structure, some nerves are blocked easier than others. Typically, smaller nerves are blocked easier, and myelinated nerves are blocked easier. Uh, it just makes sense. You need fewer local anesthetic molecules to block myelinated nerves because instead of blocking the entire nerve, you're just blocking those nodes. Um, this has a few important clinical uh, implications for us. Sensory block typically exceeds motor block in level and also in speed. Uh, in addition, sympathetic block is typically higher than all of those uh, and in addition to that, there is some differential blockade of A-delta fibers, which are described as fast pain fibers, whereas C-fibers are described as slow or burning pain, and they may not be blocked as effectively. So, Dave, is it accurate to say that you can ideally separate uh, your motor and sensory blockade, but you couldn't separate your sensory and sympathetic blockade? Uh, in general, sympathetics are probably easier to block than sensory. So in order to give local anesthetics with a significant sensory blockade, you're probably going to have some level of sympathetic block. 
obviously that also depends on where we're giving the locals. Sympathetic tone is mostly predominantly thoracic rather than lumbar. But if we give enough volume to get a sympathetic block, yeah, to, sorry, to get a sensory block, you're going to give yourself a sympathetic level. That's uh, sort of on the combo platter. It's at the top of the menu. Great. Um, that's right. just part of the course. Perfect. All right. So that was a great overview of local anesthetics. What about opioids? We use those a lot too in neuraxial uh, anesthetics. How do those work and what do you think of when, it, when you're talking about opioids? So back to pharmacology for one more second. Opioids act on mu, delta, and kappa receptors and are active in both the spinal cord and in the brainstem itself. They're often added to neuraxials because they increase the density of the block and decrease a required amount of local anesthetics. So we spoke about if you need a decent sensory level, we will always get a sympathectomy almost always get a sympathectomy if we give local anesthetics. So if we cut down on the amount of local that we give, our sympathectomy will be less. So all of the adverse effects of that sympathectomy, namely hypotension, uh, will be decreased. Um, The important quality of local anesthetics in the neuraxial space that we talk about is lipid solubility. So high lipid solubility is associated with a fast onset of action if you give an opiate intravenously. But it's also associated with a fast offset of action. This makes sense. You give IV fentanyl, onset of action is three to five minutes, and duration of action of a single bolus is maybe 15 to 45 minutes. Um, That's because it crosses the blood-brain barrier easily, but also crosses out. When drugs are given in the neuraxial space, they're already in the CNS. So high lipid solubility or lipophilic drugs will cause rapid dissociation from the intrathecal space, Whereas drugs with low lipid solubility, they're already in the intrathecal space. So their onset of action will not be significantly different, but they tend to remain in the intrathecal space for long periods of time. So we'll see why this matters when we talk about the difference in opiates that we can give. Great. So maybe let's get into some specific medications um, now that we've done kind of a basic science overview, and maybe we'll start with local anesthetics. How's that sound? Sure. That sounds great. Um, so we'll talk first about bupivacaine. Bupivacaine is our standard go-to for labor analgesia as well as cesarean delivery. It has a long duration of action in peripheral nerve blocks, epidurals, and spinals. Additionally, bupivacaine is unique in that it has a predilection for sensory anesthesia as opposed to motor blockade. So while this is helpful in C-sections, this is really helpful in labor analgesia. Because in labor analgesia, our aim is to give high-quality sensory anesthesia, but not have motor block to inhibit expulsatory efforts, pushing. Bupivacaine's packaged in a bunch of different formulations. In OB, the two most common formulations for spinals are isobaric, which is actually slightly hypobaric, half percent bupivacaine, and hyperbaric, 0.75% bupivacaine. Uh, It's hyperbaric because it's packaged in dextrose. There are arguments for both using hyperbaric and for using isobaric, solutions for cesarean delivery, and this is an area of controversy within the OB anesthesia world. Unlike Lido, remember that intravascular doses of bupivacaine will typically cause cardiovascular collapse before they result in central nervous system toxicity. While this is the subject of another talk, treatment of local anesthesia toxicity from bupivacaine typically consists of IV intralipid along with reduced doses of epinephrine and early airway support. The recommended protocol can be found at lipidrescue.org. Ropivacaine is a drug that's very similar to bupivacaine, but is associated with lower cardiac toxicity. However, 
that's toxicity on an ml per ml basis, but ropivacaine is about 40% less potent than bupivacaine. It is also about four times as expensive. So more drug is required to provide a given level of blockade, and therefore its purported margin of safety relative to bupivacaine is controversial, and it is not often used in obstetrics. Great. So, Dave, just out of curiosity, you mentioned that there are the most common forms of bupivacaine used are 0.5% and 0.75%, the isobaric and the hyperbaric. Do you, uh, is your practice to use one, the other, both, depending on the situation? So this is really an area of controversy. Um, there are people who advocate for using hyperbaric 0.75% um, for spinals for C-sections. The idea being that if you sit the patient down rapidly, the hyperbaric solution will settle in the thoracic kyphosis and therefore will give you approximately a T4 to T6 level, which is ideal for a cesarean delivery. However, if you give a hyperbaric solution and have difficulty threading the epidural catheter or the patient does not sit down quickly, you'll end up with a gravity-dependent saddle block, which is not ideal. Um, so there are arguments for using half percent bupivacaine for C-sections uh, just because it is a lot less sensitive to patient positioning, though it may be difficult to get a higher level. Um, there is an active area of controversy on which is better. Uh, typically, our, our uh, standard here is to do hyperbaric bupivacaine, and we almost always do combined spinal epidurals for our C-sections. So if we don't have a high enough level, we can always supplement with additional epidural medications. Great. Now, what about for epidurals when you're running 8% or even 0.0625%? Is that Hyperbaric, isobaric, or is, am I not, am, is it not something we think about? So baricity is not typically something that's discussed in, in epidurals, uh, only because the word, it's not a free flow space. It's more that the more volume we give, the more spread we get. Um, people talk about how you need a half to one and a half mLs per dermatome that you would like to be blocked. So for epidurals, it's less a question of bericity and more a question of volume, which is why there are those centers that advocate for using very dilute concentrations of bupivacaine at higher uh, doses in terms of mLs, and there are also centers who will give much higher concentrations of bupivacaine, but will give less physical volume. Great. All right. So I think that's really helpful. Let's move on to lidocaine. Um, tell me about how we use lidocaine. So lidocaine is our oldest anesthetic that's still currently in use, and it's remained our go-to for rapid onset of action. It's versatile, and it's used in a wide variety of clinical scenarios. Neuraxial lidocaine is typically associated with a very dense block, but unlike bupivacaine, the block is motor as well as sensory. Additionally, spinal doses of bupivacaine uh, of lidocaine have been associated with transient neurologic symptoms. These symptoms are uh, typically reported as pain in the buttocks or thighs, as well as the lower back. Deceivingly, neurological symptoms do not include bowel or bladder dysfunction. Uh, they usually resolve within a few days and are associated with a lithotomy and ambulatory surgery. Pregnancy appears to be protective for the development of transient neurologic symptoms, but that is uh, unclear in the literature. Great. And transient neurologic symptoms, just as you described them, are frequently tested on in training exams and board exams. Uh, and where, when it comes up, it certainly can come up, as you said, with asking about whether it's a permanent or they'll give you a, 
uh, description and say that it uh, went away or that they did or did not have any uh, motor uh, loss of motor function, things like that, that would not be consistent with transient neurologic symptoms. Because as you said, it's really just pain uh, and not motor, and they're temporary, not permanent. And if you get asked the question, uh, the question is often to differentiate between nuance at neurologic dysfunction and red flag symptoms of cord compression, things like uh, saddle anesthesia, nuance at bowel or bladder dysfunction, or severe motor weakness. And that could be concerning for something like an epidural hematoma or an abscess, as opposed to transient neurologic symptoms, which happen not infrequently after ambulatory surgery, um, but are largely self-limited and do not require treatment. Great. Um, All right. That's really helpful. Uh, what about mepivacaine? Mepivacaine is one that you know we hear about, and I don't know that I've ever used. Maybe I've used it for um, peripheral nerve blocks, but tell me about mepivacaine and whether you use it on OB. So mepivacaine is an amide that has the lowest pKa of all available amides. It is known for a rapid onset of action as as noted by its PKA, and it has high-quality sensory anesthesia with a shorter duration of action when used for neuraxial purposes. So whereas a bupivacaine spinal uh, will typically last you from 120 to 150 minutes, a mepivacaine spinal will typically last you from 50 to 90, similar to lidocaine. Uh, It is associated with transient neurologic symptoms, but less than lidocaine. So a really helpful situation to use mepivacaine is for short procedures where we care about early ambulation from the PACU. So we can think about doing a mepivacaine spinal for something like a cervical cerclage or a DNC where uh, the patient obviously needs to have a dense block, but we also don't want to keep the patient in the recovery room for three or four hours. It's not frequently done given the incidence of transient neurologic symptoms, but it can be extremely helpful. Okay, great. How about chlorprocaine? You mentioned that earlier as something that um, we use in high potency uh, and so, or I should say in high concentration and so uh, can have a rapid onset. Um, Tell me more about chlorprocaine. So chlorprocaine is an ester type local anesthetic with a very fast onset of action despite its high pKa. Its duration is the shortest of all common local anesthetics and this is generally use limiting. Um, However, since it is an ester, Uh, Our concern for local anesthetic systemic toxicity is significantly decreased as compared with our use of amides. Specifically in obstetrics, this is very helpful as there's limited fetal exposure to chloroprocaine. In normal, non-pseudocolonistrase deficient patients, the plasma half-life of chloroprocaine is on the order of 30 seconds. It can typically be given in 2 to 3% concentrations. Those are the concentrations that are stocked on our labor floor. Um, historically, there had been some concerns regarding neurotoxicity when used as a short-acting spinal, and there was also some concerns, and this had come up on old board questions, about the decreased efficacy of neuraxial long-acting opiates, like preservative-free morphine, when administered with chloroprocaine. Both of these were likely due to the bisulfite preservative, which had been packaged in chloroprocaine vials, which has since been removed from the market for about the last 15 years. All right. So we'd be unlikely to see those. We'll see them only on exams. Great. Fair enough. All right. So what about the CNS effects of opioids? Like fentanyl. Why don't we start with that one that we use all the time, both in OB and in the general OR? Um, how do you guys use o- use fentanyl on OB? So fentanyl is 
obviously among the most commonly used opiates. And it has some advantages in that it has a really rapid onset of action and a high margin of safety when used in the neuraxial space. It's highly lipophilic. So the spinal duration of action is fairly short, on the order of maybe one to two hours. So it works synergistically when combined with local anesthetics and increases the density of our block. Uh, the main downside of neuraxial fentanyl is pruritus. This is a very common adverse effect of all neuraxial opioids, but fentanyl, given its rapid onset of action, will typically cause intense pruritus that can be very worrisome to patients. Uh, the effects last longer than its analgesic effects, which is also very frustrating for patients. Typical doses of intrathecal fentanyl are anywhere on the order from 10 to 25 micrograms. Doses above the 20 to 25 microgram threshold don't uh, support an increase in analgesia, but do show an increase in pruritus. All right, that's really interesting. Let me ask you, when you add, I remember as a, as a resident being told that uh, when added to an epidural drip, fentanyl was no more effective in an epidural than it was in an IV. In other words, it sort of diffused into the bloodstream, and that's how it had its effect, just as it would if you gave it uh, in an IV. But in bolus dosing could have some neuraxial effect, and certainly in the spinal, as you've said. Um, is that true? Do you guys buy into that or no? So the, the thinking used to be that epidural fentanyl was effective because it was systemically absorbed. And so if you were giving enough epidural fentanyl through an infusion, you were getting a steady state concentration of IV and therefore of intracranial uh, or uh, central nervous system uh, opiate. In reality, I'm not quite sure that that's the real answer. There is a lot of data that combining opiates decreases local anesthetic requirements, even in epidural solutions. Uh, and the amount that we need to give is fairly low, and maternal blood concentrations are also fairly minimal. Our standard concentration at Hopkins is bupivacaine 0.125% with 2 micrograms per ml of fentanyl and given 8 mls an hour. So we're giving a total of 16 micrograms of fentanyl per hour right. as a standing epidural load. And it seems to decrease pain more than just 0.125%. So I don't think that argument is, is true. I think there's probably a lot more that we don't understand about it. But it certainly seems as if adding low concentrations of opiate is helpful for labor analgesia. Great. All right. How about morphine? Do we still use morphine? Morphine's gotten a bad rap, but it is still the gold standard for post-C-section analgesia. It allows newly delivered moms to ambulate without motor weakness while allowing for really significant analgesia and decreased postoperative opiate requirements. So let's talk about CSF flow. Remember that CSF flows from the brain. Uh, it's made in arachnoid villi and flows down through the brain, through the ventricles, into the spinal space. It's reabsorbed and then recirculated, again, intracranially. So this allows morphine, which is a very hydrophilic opiate, to have two peaks of effect. The first peak of effect is when we give it in the spinal space, and it's acting on the spinal receptors. This typical first peak is one to two or three hours long. Then that CSF that's in the spinal space gets reabsorbed and recirculated up cranially. People call this the rostral spread or the second peak effect. The second peak starts at six to eight hours 
after administration and has a duration of action up to 36 hours. Remember that this effect is due to opiate action on the periaqueductal gray matter and therefore has the potential to cause significant respiratory depression, especially in patients with sleep disorder breathing at baseline. So caution should be applied to dosing intrathecal or epidural morphine for patients with morbid obesity, obstructive sleep apnea, or in patients who are on other opiate therapies. The typical doses for neuraxial morphine are anywhere from 50 to 250 micrograms given intrathecally or 1 to 4 milligrams given via epidural bolus. Doses greater than this do not appear to decrease opiate requirements compared with lower doses, but have a higher incidence of pruritus and delayed respiratory depression. Okay. So let's try to get now at some of actual uh, clinical approaches that you guys are taking up there on uh, OB. I haven't been up there since I was a resident, so uh, this will be good for me to refresh my memory as well. So when you're dealing with labor analgesia, what are you doing uh, and what's the evidence-based approach that you guys are taking up there? So in labor analgesia, our primary aim is to make the patient comfortable with no significant distress while nonetheless allowing for motor function to aid in mom's pushing for delivery. To that aim, the typical approach we use is to combine dilute bupivacaine, which has sensory more than motor blockade, with low doses of fentanyl in the epidural solution. We give the patient a PCEA, a patient-controlled epidural analgesia button, and there's in our practice, a low continuous infusion, though intermittent bolus, intermittent automatic bolus has also been used. Uh, like we spoke about, the addition of opiates to epidural solutions decreases the amount of local anesthetic required. This serves to decrease the adverse effects of higher doses of neuraxial locals, most commonly hypotension from a sympathectomy, as well as significant motor weakness. And the addition of local anesthetics to opiates because there are some places that we're doing opiate-only infusions, allows for a decrease in the amount of opiate involved, and therefore the pruritus uh, is significantly less. At Hopkins, we typically run 0.125% bupivacaine with 2 mics per ml of fentanyl with a continuous rate of 8 mls an hour and a patient-controlled epidural analgesia dose of an extra 5 mls of solution every 20 minutes. Now, there are some uh, people will say that it's more effective to do intermittent boluses than a continuous drip. Is that true, or do we ever do that, or do we not have the technology to do that? So it, recent data has shown that intermittent bolus tends to improve pain scores relative to continuous infusion. The main difficulty is in uh, the technology. The pumps themselves that we have need to be reprogrammed with a different software package to allow for intermittent bolusing, which from what I understand both at my former institution and here is extremely expensive. The effects in terms of pain scores were modest at best. The theorized mechanism is that rather than having a continuous flow, you're letting the space slowly empty and then refilling it rather than having a continuous slow trickle. Um, the effect seems to be relatively modest. I know that it is something that is an active area of debate in our community. Okay, fair enough. And then how about for C-sections? What's happening up there for that? So for C-sections, our ideal is to administer a, a neuraxial uh, via the spinal route. Spinals typically cause an increased density of block relative to epidurals. So they're more even coverage. They're theoretically more reliable, um, and that's helpful. The problem, of course, is that 
if the C-section goes longer than expected or is inadequate, we need to, a way to supplement it. So typically, we will perform our cesarean deliveries if they're higher-order C-sections or uh, morbidly obese patients or patients who we anticipate a longer operative time on. We will combine bupivacaine and fentanyl in our spinal dose. We'll use either hyperbaric or isobaric bupivacaine, and we will add fentanyl to decrease our local anesthetic requirements while prolonging and enhancing our block. Our typical doses of bupivacaine are in the range of 10 to 15 milligrams and somewhere along the lines of 10 to 25 micrograms of fentanyl. Uh, For postoperative pain, we can either put morphine in our spinal or epidural at the end of the procedure, or we can perform a combined spinal epidural technique and run an epidural PCEA in the postoperative period especially for patients for whom delayed respiratory depression is a possibility or patients for whom pruritus would be extremely worrisome or in patients who are on high-dose opiate therapy uh, at home, it can be difficult to control pain with a one-shot-fits-all morphine injection in the intrathecal or epidural spaces, and therefore an epidural PCEA is helpful in order to allow us and the patient to titrate. Great. All right. And so uh, you stop me if Ann is going to get to this, but um, the other thing I remember sometimes putting in spinals for C-sections was a little epinephrine. Do you guys do that? Or so Ann is going to talk about epi. Great. Um, this is actually a great segue. Um, Ann will be talking about some non-opiate adjuvants we can add to our mix. Great. Well, that's fantastic. Dave, that was great. Thank you very much. Thank and, you. Ann, uh, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Um, so like we said. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about neuroaxial adjuvants today. So um, like Dave mentioned, so local anesthetics are great. We like it. We like opioids. Um, However, he has mentioned in the past its use is limited because of its duration of action and dose-dependent, you know, adverse effects that comes with it. Um, So we are, what, what can we do? How do we avoid that? So we add other things to it other than local anesthetic and opioids. Great. Um, so what that's going to do is it basically adds to, it synergistically acts uh, with the local anesthetic and opioid to either, one, prolong the duration of action, um, creates a denser block, and or basically limit the cumulative uh, dose requirement. So other than opioids, um, what other drugs can we add to our solution? Okay, so normally, um, I'll speak first about some of the common things that we, we do almost on a daily basis, and then we'll kind of segue into uh, other things that can be added that aren't used as often, um, such as um, alpha-2 uh, agonists such as clonidine or dexmedetomidine, and uh, we'll go from there. So. Great. So this is great. I'm excited because, uh, you know, I remember um, as a resident, as I just said to Dave, I routinely, we would put epinephrine in there. Uh, and we would actually uh, not not irregularly use clonidine. But I, ha- I remember hearing about these, you know, maybe uh, people were thinking about neostigmine, ketamine, um, even NSAIDs. So uh, I'm very curious to hear uh, what you think, whether you guys are doing that or whether there's any evidence for that and, and what's changed over the years. Um, so uh, like you said, why don't we start with the most common uh, things and maybe tell me about epinephrine since that's at least something that, uh, that I know I used to do. Okay, sure. So um, like I said, so epinephrine is the most common uh, adjuvant that we add to all of our neuraxial. Um, so it is, let's start from the beginning. So it's a non-selective adrenergic agonist. So it binds all of the alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, 2, and 3. 
Um, what that does is it increases the block density and reduces the systemic absorption of local anesthetic, and that leads to prolonged duration. Now, so, um, let me just interrupt you for a second. So uh, I think I certainly am familiar with alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, and beta-2. Mm-hmm. Remind me about beta-3. So beta-3 basically works on the adipose tissue. So it works in the body. However, it has really no function in the CNS that we are concerned with. Um, Great. So then you were saying uh, you can increase the block density, the absorption of local anesthetic, the block duration. What else do we get from adding uh, epinephrine? Okay, so let me just go through one by one as to how these things are going to happen. So uh, essentially, uh, epinephrine causes vasoconstriction. So what that does is it limits the systemic uptake overall of the local anesthetic. Okay, and then because it has alpha-2 activity, that alpha-2 receptor stimulation can lead to analgesic, basically gives it the analgesic effects. Okay, Um, so as a result... The effect is greater when it's combined with lidocaine and bupivacaine. So we add that usually to, um, we can do it to our spinal and or epidural solutions. So usually the common concentrations that we use is 1 to 400,000 to 1 to 200,000 epidurally or 100 to 200 microgram in our spinal solution. All right. And just so I always tell my residents, 1 to 200,000 is 5 mics per ml, mm -hmm. right? So 1 to 400,000 would be 2.5. That's right. Great. That's correct. All right. The easy way to remember that is the rule of a million. That's how I remember it. The number one to whatever and a million, multi- divide a million by that number, and you get mics per ml. Great. That's a really nice little rule of thumb. So, it, for example, one to 200,000, divide a million by 200,000, you get five. Correct. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. All right. That also relies on you being able to do math. Yes, you do have to. It's <laughs> a lot of zeros. It's a lot of zeros. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Or use your calculator. <laughs> so five mics per milligram um, in lidocaine. So that concentration nearly doubles the duration of action for the epidural. And about 3.3 microgram per milligram, which is 1 to 300,000 in bupivacaine, um, actually has been shown to have no effects on the maternal venous plasma concentration of drugs. Um, And there has been studies out there that shows that, you know, five mics per milligram in bupivacaine also has no effect. Five mics per ml. Per ml. Right. So... So interesting. So you're saying that if you are going to run lidocaine in your epidural mm-hmm. and you uh, add epinephrine, it increases your duration quite a lot, even doubles mm-hmm. it. That's but right. it sounds like there's really no, no advantage in an epidural to, uh, where you're running bupivacaine to adding epinephrine to your bupivacaine. Right. Okay. Um, however, people still do. Um, there's people that um, will do about 200 mics um, addition to their bupivacaine in their spinal. Or some people will do what's called a... Uh, an epi wash, where literally you put some epi in this syringe, twirl around, squirt the epi out. So literally you have some epi sticking on the walls of the syringe, if that, um, and they believe that, that there is an effect. But yeah, so studies have not shown that there is really a significant effect when added to epipivacaine. And is that true for both spinals and epidurals or just epidural? Okay. So uh, adding epi to epipivacaine... Uh, has no effect that is true in epidurals. Um, however, there's conflicting evidence um, as to adding it in the spinal solution um, increases or or decreases the duration of action. Okay. Great. So maybe it helps a little bit du- uh, prolonging your duration in a spinal, definitely doesn't in an epidural. That's right. All right. Fair enough. So uh, what's next? Anything else about uh, epinephrine? Yeah, so just a little bit of, um, you know, some interesting uh, facts about epinephrine. So if the local anesthetic is more lipid-soluble, the advantage of epinephrine is less significant. So let's do some examples. So lidocaine and ropipocaine has a lipid-to-water coefficient of 2.7. So bupivacaine has a coefficient of 10 times that. 
Um, so that means that it works better with lidocaine and rapamycaine, not so much with rapamycaine, which we kind of um, talked about. Um, the other thing is we have to be aware of uh, the effects on the uterine blood flow and the maternal cardiovascular system. So as we know, epinephrine in the um, intravenous space um, can cause hypertension. So fetuses with increased uh, vascular resistance um, epi can lead to an increased umbilical artery um, system, systolic to diastolic ratio. So we just have to be careful when we give it. It's not that it's not done. We just have to keep an eye on it. And so when we say fetuses with increased vascular resistance, are we talking about uh, fetuses in women who have preeclampsia? Okay. That, that's right. Um, so when their placenta has less blood flow in general already, you want to be careful because adding that will even decrease, you know, lower the uh, blood flow that the fetus is getting. Okay. So, and that makes sense. Epinephrine is a vasoconstrictor, so you would imagine it might vasoconstrict and cause some reduced blood flow. All right. So... Uh, how about sodium bicarbonate? That's something that uh, I think I remember maybe some people adding. I, th I know people add it sometimes when they're going to be giving um, lidocaine into the skin, I think because they say it'll make it less mm -hmm. painful. How does that play out in OB? Right. So sodium bicarb um, was, was common. Uh, it seems to not be, it seems to be kind of going out of favor recently. Um, so let's just start with a little bit of, you know, pharmacodynamics about it. So what did, what, why do we do it? So basically it speeds onset. That's the theorized um, mechanism of action. It speeds onset and improves the block quality um, by alkalinization of the local anesthetic. So like Dave was kind of mentioning before, pH equals pKa. So the closer the pKa is to the pH, the faster the onset. So by adding sodium bicarb, you're increasing um, the uh, non-ionized concentration. And as a result, that makes it penetrate basically the layers faster. So there have been studies that said that it can hasten the onset of the epidural blockade by as much as 10 minutes. Um, however, that's controversial nowadays. Um, there's, there's basically studies saying either it increases or it doesn't increase. So we really don't have a consensus as to what it really uh, is the benefit of uh, sodium bicarb. Okay. Um, the effects of the alkalinization is actually more pronounced in epinephrine-containing solutions uh, because solutions that contain epinephrine generally ha are more acidic and they have a lower pH of around 3.2 to 4.2. Um, so a lot of our lidocaine solutions actually come pre-mixed with the epinephrine in there. Um, so thus it is quite, quite acidic. Okay. So um, the other thing you have to be careful when you add sodium bicarb is you have to add it immediately prior to use uh, because it does, it can prevent, uh, it can cause precipitation and it does so more often in bupivacaine um, than it does in lidocaine. And the other thing, too, is because it accelerates the onset, you have to think about the uh, accelerated onset of the sympathetic blockade. So you have to watch out for hypotension uh, much faster. The dosages that we normally use, if we use them at all, is about one milliequivalent per ml for every 10 mils of local anesthetic. Uh, and personally, I've used it mainly with lidocaine. I have never used it with bupivacaine. Um, I have seen a case where precipitation happened in front of my eyes where someone mixed um, the sodium bicarb with bupivacaine in a, just a peripheral nerve block. Okay. So you want to be careful if you're going to do it. Um, how about clonidine? I remember clonidine being a really effective adjuvant when I uh, used to use it uh, as a resident. So tell me about that. Do you guys use it? And if so, why? 
Um, so clonidine can be used. Um, we do not use it so often. Um, it is used more in coddles, uh, as far as I can remember, than it is for us for labor analgesia. So let's just talk a little bit about clonidine. So uh, clonidine is an alpha-2 um, agonist, adrenergic agonist. The advantage of clonidine includes um, analgesia without actually affecting sensation or motor blockade. It can prolong duration and increase the segmental spread of the sensory blockade. So why don't we use it? So disadvantages. It can cause hypotension and bradycardia. Um, easy way to think about it. People use clonidine to treat hypertension. So just oral clonidine does that. So as you can imagine, it acts, it's directly into the CNS. Um, so this acts, and this happens because it acts on the uh, preganglionic cholinergic neurons, um, and it also causes sedation, quite a bit of sedation, and that acts by uh, the simulation of the locus ceruleus. Okay. Um, so how does it work inside the neuroaxial? So the mechanism of action is it binds the alpha-2 receptors um, on the primary afferent terminals of the spinal cord and the substantia gel gelatinosa and the brainstem nuclei. So what that does is it increases the potassium and decreases the release of substance P, and that's the prime analgesic mode. Okay. Um, it does have a black box warning, and that is why there's not so widely used in the OB uh, population because of hemodynamic instability. As I mentioned before, it can cause hypotension and bradycardia. Um, so as a result, it's not really widely used um, in the United States. It is used more often in other European countries. Um, it's useful in women in whom uh, other analgesic, um, epidural analgesics are contraindicated or in those who have breakthrough pain that's not alleviated by the standard local anesthetic and opioid mixture. Um, usually, 75 mics uh, microgram without local anesthetic um, is not associated with hypotension. And intrathecally, a normal dose is about 15 to 30 microgram um, can be added to the opioid or local anesthetic. Um, chestnut, which is basically the Bible for you know OB for our world, um, recommends about a 75 to 150 microgram um, of clonidine can be added to the epidural. Yeah, and we I think we used to do 100 mics uh, added to our epidural bolus. Yeah. Um, definitely did get some sedation, as you said, but did seem to get really uh, quite a nice increase in effect of the epidural. Right. So uh, if I, I've honestly purpose, uh, personally have not used clonidine at all in the labor. However, I've used it, like I said, in caudal, and usually they're in babies mm -hmm. who are having some sort of GU procedures, and in those cases we'll do about 20, mm -hmm. 20 mics. Okay. Now, when I think of clonidine these days, I also think of dexmedetomidine or Presidex mm -hmm. um, because it's also an alpha-2 agonist. I've never heard of it, but uh, being used uh, in OB, but but uh, I'm as I said, I'm out of date. So you tell me, is right. that something that's being done? So so we are not using it, but yes, technically it can be done because there are studies out there that shows that you know they people have done it. Um, so Presidex, so dexmedetomidine, is seven times more selective for the alpha two receptor than clonidine. The recommended usual dosages of intrathecal is about five to ten microgram, and epidural about one microgram per um, per kilo. Okay. So it also uh, acts by the same way that clonidine does. It prolongs the duration of action, improves the post-op um, analgesia, um, without the side effects when uses at, when you use it at a low dose as uh, lower than five microgram intrathecally. However, it is associated with a higher incidence of bradycardia. So. Again, extreme caution when using it. It seems to be superior to colonidine um, when used as an adjuvant, but not too many places have used it. I don't think there's just enough studies out there to 
um, support one way or another. So right now it is still, uh, some places are using it, some places are not. I have not, and I don't, we are not doing that here. Okay. Well, that'll be interesting to keep our eye on. How about other adjuvants that, to, le- to me at least, are, are certainly less common, like neostigmine? Tell me about that. Is that being used? So every, everything on here is being used somewhere. Um, we just we are not using neostigmine here, um, and let's just talk a little bit about that. So how does neostigmine work? Uh, neostigmine inhibits the breakdown of acetylcholinesterase in the spinal cord. So um, and that leads to and you can tell that acetylcholine um, binding mus- uh, binds muscarinic and nicotinic receptors. So by stimulation of the muscarinic receptors, um, you get a release of GABA from the dorsal horn, and that is how you get your analgesic effect. So theoretically, it works. Um, However, all the studies have agreed that neostigmine intrathecally produces significant post-op nausea and vomiting, so it's actually not recommended um, to be used intrathecally. There are some people who used um, neurostigmine for epidural. However, it has a limited um, efficacy. It is more effective with somatic pain versus visceral pain. Um, And when combined with the epidural, um, sufetanil or clonidine, it produces selective analgesia. So the other thing, too, is larger doses can potentially reduce the uteroplacental flow um, by the um, CNS activation and direct stimulation of uterine contractions. So as you can see, that's not good for the OB world. Right. Doesn't sound good. No. Um, So post-C-section analgesia, um, the recommended dose is about 75 to 300 mics um, epidurally, but it also causes increased sedation. So the other thing to watch out for, sedation. It's actually not FDA approved for neuroaxial administration. So although it has been used, it is not widely used. Okay. How about ketamine? I really like to use ketamine a lot for, for example, ICU intubations. Haven't used it on OB. Um, tell me about how that's being used. So that is some of the newer things that um, have been experiment. They are experimenting with right now. So ketamine, um, as some of you know, works on the NMDA receptor. Is it an NMDA receptor antagonist? Um, and because of that, it has local anesthetic t- uh, properties. So it involves NMDA, cholinergic, adrenergic, and the five hydroxy Contaminase receptors. Um, it has been found to potentiate the effects of local anesthetic by producing a faster onset um, of sensory and motor blockade, but it also decreases the duration of action and extends the motor block. So it can potentially be good, but for OB, from what it sounds like, it doesn't sound like it's the greatest thing to be used uh, in OB. Caudal ketamine in doses of 0.5 milligram per kilo has been studied in children undergoing uh, lower abdominal surgeries, um, showed that it's prolongation of analgesic duration. However, um, there's still talks of neurotoxicity. So again, still very controversial. It's good. It's bad. We don't know. Okay. Interesting. How about magnesium? Is magnesium being used in uh, in neuraxial uh, blockade? And if so, how? Okay, so it is being it is being used. It is not being used here. So the way magnesium works is it's also an NMDA receptor antagonist, and it inhibits the voltage-gated uh, calcium channels. So intrathecal magnesium has been shown to prolong motor and sensory blockade for up to 3 to 27 hours um, in orthopedic surgeries, general and gynecology procedures. The prolonged duration, um, it prolongs duration of spinal opioid analgesia when co-administered. Um, 
Dosages of about 25 to 100 milligram have been used, along with opioids such as fentanyl and zufentanyl, um, with or without local anesthetic. Epidural-administered um, magnesium sulfate with local anesthetic has showed a rapid onset of sensory blockade in thoracic and orthopedic surgeries, with a lower incidence of post-op shivering and post-op nausea and vomiting. So as an adjuvant in, in labor analgesia, it's been shown to provide faster onset of action, longer duration of action, and reduce breakthrough pain with no significant um, side effects or fetal adverse outcome. And the side effects you have to watch out for, though, um, includes bradycardia, hypotension, sedation, headache, disorientation, or periumbilical burning pain. So... It was really interesting. So uh, it sounds like it can be very effective. It's quite a range, 3 to 27 hours. Right. So uh, I'm right. curious, if listeners, if anyone is using magnesium out there, whether it's for orthopedic procedures or for labor, uh, let us know. It would be interesting to hear. Yeah. So the thing is, these drugs are being, there's a lot of studies out there saying one way or another. A lot of them, though, are not done on pregnant women just because nobody wants to take the risk of having both the mother and baby at risk for trying a new thing so sure. you just got to keep that in mind makes sense all right and and just to be very clear we are not advocating the use of any of these uh just describing them you should always check with your institution's policies before using any medications uh in any form whatsoever all right dexamethasone uh, tell me about that how's that used okay so as we all know dexamethasone is a steroid and what that is is it's a potent anti-inflammatory agent so there is a study out there that showed that eight milligrams um, with standard dose of hyperbaric 0.5 percent bupivacaine intrathecally for orthopedic surgery actually prolongs the duration of the block without any significant side effect but you got to keep in mind that was one study Epidural uh, dexamethasone, about 4 to 8 milligrams, has also been looked at, um, but really research just needs to be done. So I just wanted to put it out there that this is actually being looked at right now. Apparently, people are using it. It is not widely used, and there is still a lot of research to be done with this. All right, good. Well, that'll be interesting to see where that goes as well. So you mentioned that this may work partly through the fact that dexamethasone is an anti-inflammatory agent as are NSAIDs, um, so are those being used? Right. That Those are being used just the same way that they think pr- the proposed theory kind of behind the, why dexamethasone works is that, so NSAIDs, um, such as paracoxib and lornosicam, um, has been recently studied. There are studies that shows that prolongs the effects of a local anesthetic when administered epidurally. However, the use of epidural um, lornosicam has also been shown to cause histopathical signs of neurotoxicity. So all of these things... Sounds great. Potentially could work. We don't know. All right. Pending more research. That's right. How about midazolam? How is that used? So midazolam works by um, basically it acts on the benzodiazepine receptors on the gray matter of the spinal cord. The analgesic effect um, is caused by the spinal suppression of sensory function, and its um, anti-nociceptive effects is mediated by the GABAergic and opioid receptor mechanism. So the normal doses of midaz, um, intrathecal dose, is about 1 to 2.5 milligram. It has been shown to prolong post-op analgesia. Um, and the epidural dose of 50 microgram per kilo um, potentiates the effects of bupivacaine in patients undergoing upper abdominal surgeries. So these, um, some of these other non, not as common adjuvants I mentioned because it has been used neuroaxially. However, none of them um, have been used for labor because, as I mentioned before, nobody wants to do research on a pregnant woman. Right. Okay. Fantastic. 
Anything else uh, that we're uh, that we need to add here, Dave or on? Um, just one thing I will say, and just one thing I will say in terms of of adding additional adjuvants. Um, obviously, we all work a lot. We all work hard. Uh, I had the unfortunate pleasure of watching a junior resident when I was a CA three uh, draw up a milligram of epinephrine, thinking it was bupivacaine, not looking closely at the vial. Uh, and having his hands on a spinal needle. So these things happen, and drug errors are a real concern, especially when we're mixing four or five different drugs together for our spinals. In a regular C-section at Hopkins, we can, for a single-shot spinal, we will add bupivacaine, epi, fentanyl, and preservative-free morphine. And so you're at least mixing four drugs, and then if you add additional adjuvants, you're adding even more stuff. So I would just exercise a lot of caution, especially at night when on call, especially in urgent or emergent situations, to be very careful with administering meds and also to not do something that you've never done before by yourself. Absolutely. Um, And so I, at night, will not give fentanyl in my spinals if I'm planning on giving Duramorph. If I'm giving Duramorph, I will not give fentanyl. Because I don't want to change the dosing orders around, and those are things not to mess around with. Great. And Duramorph is more Preservative-free morphine. Right. Um, so just one extra thing. Um, we've talked about it before, but epinephrine. It is a very common adjuvant, very, very common. Almost everything has epinephrine in it. If you are going to give epinephrine and you have to draw it up, please, please, please do the math three, four, five times if you have to. It is a crazy, significant math issue <laughs> more than you don't know what you're doing. So just be careful. Yeah. You definitely don't want to give too much epinephrine. Um, way better, obviously, to underdose it. And especially with, uh, and I think it's what you're referring to on, the whole 1 to 200,000, 1 to 300,000 is, it can be very confusing. I like Dave's little trick to divide from a million, but still that whole dose, it can be more difficult. It would certainly make more sense if we just went to a milligram per ml um, or a microgram per ml uh, and got rid of the one to 200,000 uh, issue, but it is what it is. You may still come across that. Uh, so be careful with your math, as An says. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was fantastic. It's always great to get some fellows on here, and they really uh, we are lucky to have two fantastic ones this year in OB. All right. If you have any comments, go to ACRAC.com, where you can comment on this or any of the episodes. This one I'm particularly interested to hear if anyone has any comments, because there's so much here, especially the things that Ann was talking about that are kind of experimental or are just being done in some places but not many and not here. So we'd love to hear who's using magnesium, who's using ketamine, who's using neostigmine, uh, and how is your experience with it been? Let us know. You can also, of course, reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. You have the email addresses of Dave and Ann that they gave at the beginning, and I'll post those uh, on the show notes as well. If you uh, have time and inclination and you're a fan of the show, go to iTunes and leave a comment and rating. Even if you've already done it, you can do it again, and it helps others find the show. If you want to help support making the show, please go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can sign up to be a supporter of the show, even if you just give a dollar or two. It really goes a long way towards helping us, and we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. That's it for today for the ACRAC podcast. And for Dave Berman and An Nguyen, I'm Jed Wolpaw. 
Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.